This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Father James Martin. Download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. Hello, Father Martin. Oh, Chris. <laughs> Hello, Father Martin. Hey, how are you? Hi, good. Hey, but first thing I want to say is I love your show. <laughs> well, thank you. I listen to it all the time. Well, that means a lot. Yeah, I love it. Love it, love it, love it. <laughs> and I do. <clears throat> well, and that is not me, false praise. Makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just awesome. You must love doing it. Yeah, I do. I do love doing it. Um, but I I always... Uh, I always caution people to from putting my job up on a pedestal because, like every job, you know, the part that's most romantic out on the surface is not what I get mm. to spend 100% oh, of my I, time I, doing. You know I, what I mean? I can't, I can't imagine that there are any problems with your job or <laughs> anything you do. That, that It must be – it's perfect, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's just right? – yeah, well, no, when people yeah. say – when people say, "Oh, I wish I were you," you could spend oh, yeah. all no, your know. time. Oh, I know. In conversation, <laughs> that's all you do. it's like, that's "Oh, right. yeah, that's when I'm not raising yeah. money and I know, no, making I know. dinner for my children and taking out the trash." And yeah, you know. no, I mean, it is. There's a yes. I, I always say to people, compare and despair. Because you know, <laughs> right. what happens? This is my little thing. You. And uh, people do it to me, and I do it to other people. You yeah. involuntarily no, say, "Oh, it's perfect yeah. person," and then you know you compare it to your mixed bag life, and guess which loses out. You yeah. know, I know. Well, so. it you know what you know in detail. I know. Well, I get, I get. Oh, it must be so wonderful to always be in communion with God. That's right. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, that's twenty four seven. That's right. <laughs> I don't, I don't even have to think about it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, we're there's a little technical thing happening in the room right now, mm-hmm. but. As soon as it's done, okay. we'll, be, we'll be live. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about anything substantive before we start because okay. I'm afraid we will. Okay. You know, I want I'll us to be. What I, for, I want us I'll to be really superficial right now for a few yeah. minutes. <laughs> I'm very good at that. <laughs> I'd actually prefer to do the deep stuff now and be totally superficial. No, in the sorry, sorry, it won't work that way. <laughs> you know, can I ask Leshek? Can you uh, uh, turn down my volume a little bit? Is that okay of my own voice? Yeah, my own voice. Thank you so much. Chris, uh, how blah, are we blah, doing? Blah. Are we do you need any what you had for breakfast? Is that okay? or anything That's like much that? better. Thank you. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Felt like I was shouting at um, myself. Where where are you? Now what studio are you in? Oh, uh, Carnegie Hall. Okay. Which also people think, you know, like I'm recording on the stage. Yeah. Well, they'll also <laughs> think that we were sitting Sitting in the room together, and they'll be stunned when we tell them that we were only connected by headphones. Actually, but I find that it's better this way it's for very radio. Intimate. It's really well, wonderful. but also you 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 can. I mean, I'm telling you this. You mm-hmm. know this. You know, one has to uh, sort of communicate only through your voice and your words, and yeah. so you have to be really clear, rather than you know, if you're in person. That's right, and. Um, and also, it's the you know <clears throat> all we have to work with is the human voice, and that's all the mm-hmm. listener has to work with. So, mm-hmm. when you're sitting with someone and you have the benefit and the distraction of all that body language and visuals mm-hmm. and eye contact, mm-hmm. um, yep. you can that can muddy um, just kind of the pure conversation. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. Plus, I don't like to deal with people one on one. I just I don't like people, <laughs> so to keep away. <laughs> It's not part of my ministry. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
Um, well, okay. I think we have the green light. We can start. Okay. We can start talking about deep things now if we feel like it. Um, uh, so it was really fun. Um, you know, of course, I've known about you and kind of read you for years, and it was fun to to dive in. It was. I I I did not. I, um, I did not know the part of your story that, you know, that you didn't, you know, because you are known as a religious figure, um, you know, it didn't surprise me that much that you didn't grow up especially religious um, or grow up to be religious. But I I did not realize that you um, studied business in college and worked in corporate finance for GE into your mid-20s and only then were captured, uh, it seems, by Thomas Merton. Is that right? Was that really what... The big turning point for you? It was. I um, I grew up, what I say, in a lukewarm Catholic family. That doesn't mean my parents weren't good people or Catholic, but, you know, we weren't super Catholic. Mm-hmm. I certainly never thought about being a priest or I didn't know what a Jesuit was. And uh, I went to the Wharton School of Business uh, in from 1978 to 1982 and got a degree in finance. We were told finance, not finance. Uh, it's, you know, it's much I'm glad I learned that at this late stage yes. in my life. Yes. <laughs> and um, I took a job with GE, uh, General Electric in New York, and, and worked for GE uh, in finance and accounting and then in human resources uh, at GE Capital, their financial services arm, for six years before I uh, figured that uh, this was just not the right place for me. And I came home one night, and uh, in the midst of a lot of confusion about my future. I turned on the TV and saw a documentary about uh, Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, uh, who I had never heard of. And the documentary was so compelling that it prompted me to go out and read his book, The Seven Story Mountain, which, uh, you know, to coin a phrase, changed my life. And that, that kind of led to the Jesuits. But yeah, I, it's, um, it's amazing looking back uh, how God was able to work through all of that and through all of that confusion and, and through a lot of ignorance uh, on my part, too. Hmm. It's, it's pretty amazing um, the number of really interesting monastics in particular who, who, were, who were led down that path by Thomas Merton's book, The Seven Story Mountain, isn't it? I mean, you must have come across that. Oh, dozens. So and, uh, many. You know, here's, yeah. yeah, here's a book written in the 40s that still speaks to people. And I think, you know, for those who don't know what it's about, uh, you know, he's a, a sort of a lost young man uh, who lives a fairly dissolute life, uh, born in France, studies in England, finally comes to Columbia University and uh, stumbles on the Trappist monks uh, and finds his Didn't vocation he, and enters. did father a child as well in there? I mean, he was a... Well, you know, there's a lot of... Is that not controversy about oh, that? Okay. He let, let's say he thought that he fathered okay. a child. Okay, so he could have fathered a child, <laughs> which yeah, tells well, us what he, he was up to. <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah. I mean, he really was kind of tomcatting around, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, over in the UK and then in the United States, and uh, he has a kind of aimless, sad life uh, early on, and he finds the monastery, and he's happy. Uh, and I think you know, one I, I've I've you know conducted. Uh, book clubs and retreats and given talks and stuff like that. And I think one of the things that people like about Merton is his passion. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's very black and white, you know, early on, you know, world bad, monastery good, but they well, connect right. with his Seven passion. Story Mountain. I mean, isn't it true that later on he was kind of embarrassed by that book because it is that, it has that zeal of a convert, right? Mm-hmm. He was. He was. Yeah. He said, I don't know the man that, that, that wrote that yeah. book. Uh, you know, yeah. it's also very, it was very judgmental about other religions, right? Right, and um, yeah, and about about a lot the way you one can be in one's twenties and thirties. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. and and also um, 
you know, I'm, I found the perfect life and everybody else is, yeah. you know, kind of like sheep. Yeah. Uh, and then he has this epiphany uh, later on in his life where he realizes uh, he's on a street corner in Louisville where he realizes I'm like everybody else and everybody's like me and it's this beautiful connection. So nonetheless, that book still appeals to people. You know, um, I was also, I, I was also, I also noticed that you, you found his book "No Man Is an Island" uh, important mm. because I'd say that's the book that, that kind of crossed my path. At a moment where I was opening my mind to all of this in a new way, and and it was really transformative. And and somewhere in in your one of your books, you you know you you pull out this first paragraph of "No Man Is an Island." You know. Why do we spend our lives striving to be something that we would never want to be if only we knew what we wanted? Why do we waste our time doing things which, if we only stop to think about them, are just the opposite of what we were made for? Yeah, I, that, that's the line that changed my life, really. And I just thought, wh- why? <laughs> why am I doing that? Mm-hmm. And it felt like he was speaking directly to me. And I felt like, you know, business is a real vocation for a lot of people. Uh, and it just wasn't for me. And I was miserable. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't know how I could find a way out. And that sentence, which really was like a thunderbolt, uh, just prompted me to just shake things up and ask myself that question. And I always say to young people, you know, um, what would you want to do if you could do anything that, uh, you know, you could do? It's a very clarifying question for people. And that's, you know, Jesus asks people that, you know, what do you want? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of understanding your desires. So, yeah, I love that paragraph. I go back to it a lot. But I think, you know, there's some subtlety to this because that's not a question that's not asked in certain contexts in American culture. But it's often the the, the, the connotations are often like, what would you be – which means what would you have as a career? What kind of money mm-hmm. would you be making, right? What would your job mm-hmm. title be? How would you be changing the world or succeeding? Um, and I think that there's a distinction between that and the way you talk about vocation. I mean, even when, even the way you just said, you know, that vocation, um, that you can have, that business can be a vocation. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't yours. Yeah. Or, or, or the language of calling um, mm-hmm. Which you use uh, uh, and is very much used in the sense of monastic and religious professions, but I, I think something that really runs through all your writing is that is that uh, that callings and vocation, as opposed to mere career, is not something that's restricted to monastics. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Or priests, or sisters, or brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone has a vocation. I mean, the most fundamental vocation is to become the person, you know, whom God created. Uh, and it's it's both the person you already are and the person that God calls you to be. Um, and I think we find that out through our desires, you know, what, what moves us, what touches us, uh, you know, what are we drawn to. Part of that's career, you know, but only part of it. I mean, it's really who you're called to be, and that's why that question really spoke to me. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a popular misconception that having a quote-unquote vocation means that you have to be a priest or a sister or a brother. But a vocation is... Uh, you know, your deepest identity and as well, 
you know, being called to married life or being a lawyer or a yeah, being a parent, or, I think, is a vocation. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. much harder vocation than being a priest, frankly. <laughs> you know, we don't get up at uh, three in the morning for, for feeding. Well, you don't get you don't get any of that training. You just you plunge into <laughs> no, it. No, we do not. <laughs> I mean, I love, you know, and I love the use of the word desire, because, again, I think if we do separate, if we do think about, you know, vocation or calling in kind of narrow spiritual terms, which sounds very serious, um, mm-hmm. then we probably wouldn't use that that language of desire that it that it does that it that it has to do with your desires and in fact being in touch with them is one kind of compass. But in fact there is a very long and deep philosophical and theological tradition of thinking about desire and calling. Yeah, and you know, I'm a Jesuit and uh, our founder Saint Ignatius in his classic text, The Spiritual Exercises, talked about praying for what you desire. Uh, and also praying to understand your desires. Mm. Uh, you know, what are your deepest desires that moves you? Because I believe that your deepest desires, the things that you're drawn to, the, the, the person you're called to be, are really God's desires for you. I mean, how else would God call us to something? Uh, you know, you think of a married couple, that's the easiest example. You know, they're drawn to each other. And, and that you would ask them, do you feel drawn to each other? Do you feel God drew you to one another? They'd say, sure. Well, how does that happen? Desire, physical, emotional, spiritual. It's the same in different jobs. It's the same in religious vocations. But it's also the same in the person you desire to be. I think we all have a, an image of the person we want to become, you know, more loving, more open, more free. Mm-hmm. That's a call. That, that is God calling you to become that person. And it's, it starts with desire, uh, which I think is so beautiful. That just, yeah. it's, it's helping people understand that and recognizing it, that it, it in a way that to, to tell them it's not selfish, you know, desire ultimately is not selfish. Yeah, it's freeing and it opens the possibility that this, that this you know, not necessarily is easy, but is a, you know, is a process that has joy in it <laughs> and delight yeah. and, um, and... And heartache sometimes yeah, as, as we try to, as we, as we let go of the things that we're not called to be and the parts mm-hmm. of our lives that, you know, are keeping us back. I mean, this, this comes up again and again in direction. I mean, people... They in see who they direction. are before God. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, in spiritual direction, they see who they are before God, and they they feel the sense of wanting to, you know, in a sense, move beyond that and become someone different. And and I always tell them, this is good. This is this is God calling you. You know, this is this is a process, and it's it's ultimately liberating, which is yeah. a great message for people. Yeah. So, you know, spiritual direction is an example of something. I think like. <clears throat> like contemplation in Christianity that um, that for a long time was kind of consigned to experts, monks and nuns, mm-hmm. professional religious mm-hmm. people. Um, and that modern, I mean, 21st century people are rediscovering, you know, contemplative meditative practices and, and, and spiritual direction <clears throat> in particular also with um, – as 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 almost a need that they had that they just didn't couldn't name before, um, I, I do That's think very that well put, yes. yeah. But I do think that Saint Ignatius of Loyola, who was the founder of of your order of the Jesuits, was was a kind of exception to that rule of of keeping these things for specialists. Um, I, I sense that you know that the spiritual exercises were were at the center of loyal and spirituality and. And and that's something that I think people are rediscovering um, also, you know, through you at this moment. 
Well, I hope so. Um, I, you know, you're right. Uh, the spiritual exercises and spiritual direction and that practice uh, is at the heart of uh, Jesuit spirituality or Ignatian spirituality. And you're right. Ignatius meant that for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and that got him into a lot of trouble, uh, you know, uh, when he was alive in the 16th century. Uh, he liked to say that the creator could deal directly with the creature so that God can deal directly with us through prayer, through our daily experiences. And spiritual direction is basically helping people see where God's activity, uh, you know, is happening in their lives, mostly in their prayer, but also in their daily lives. And it's, it's, I do a lot of spiritual direction um, with a lot of different kinds of people. And it's beautiful to see how God is at work in people's life. And uh, it's a real grace to be able to, to do that. It kind of increases your own faith too. But you're right, Ignatius meant that for everyone because God deals with everyone directly, even though people sometimes aren't aware of it. It's just a question of an inviting them to notice it, uh, to be aware of that and to kind of awake to that. So how would you, um, how would you begin to talk about the, you know, the distinctives of, of Loyal and um, of Ignatian uh, spirituality? I mean, because <clears throat> it, it is very unique. It, it is like, it's a, it's a school, it's a genre. Um, and it's, and it's quite different. It's quite different from, um, other forms of uh, contemplation in Christianity and also quite different from, uh, you know, most forms of Buddhist uh, meditation. So to talk about what, what that is, the, the approach. Sure. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a Christian spirituality, so it's all centered on Christ. And, and in a way, it's therefore related to, you know, Benedictine, Franciscan, Dominican spirituality. But it does have a lot in common with uh, other spiritualities like Buddhism, for example, its emphasis on freedom. Probably the, the, the shortest way of describing it, it is finding God in all things. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that God is not simply to be found in our prayer life, which is very important, or in worship services and mass or in reading the Bible. All those are important and at the center of uh, that kind of spirituality. But in your daily life, you know, in your relationships, uh, uh, in your work, uh, in the emotions that come up, in those Moments that you uh, see a sunset and you say, my gosh, that's so beautiful. Why am I feeling like this? Or, you know, you see an infant for the first time, like, you know, your niece or your nephew or your son or your daughter or granddaughter or grandson. And you say, my gosh, you know, where am I? Where are these feelings coming from? And, you know, these are ways that God has of communicating with us through our daily lives in all things. Um, and then the second way we look at it is, is being a contemplative in action. So we're not monks. We Jesuits are not monks. We're out in the world. Uh, and yet we have that contemplative stance towards everything so that every moment is an invitation to encounter the living God, you know, who wants to encounter us. So uh, it's a beautiful spirituality. It's very, it, it, it's very kind of spacious and it fits people and uh, it's user-friendly. Uh, and once people encounter it, uh, their lives change. Uh, I'm directing a a young man through uh, the spiritual exercises right now, and it's wonderful to see how his life is changing. And I have other people who are spiritual directees, as they're called in the trade, and uh, it's just beautiful to see. It's a, it's a, that, that's Ignatius's great gift to the world. Uh, the Jesuits' great gift is not our schools and our high schools as wonderful as they are. It's Ignatian spirituality and the spiritual exercises. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's life-changing. Like for somebody who'd never experienced it, I mean, there's this imaginative, um, visual uh, mm-hmm. aspect, which is very accessible. I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. need a lot of training or practice. Um, so just describe how you might, you know, just an, an exercise. Um, 
Yeah, so the kind of prayer you're talking about is often called Ignatian contemplation, or Ignatius mm-hmm. calls it composition of place, and it's using your imagination to place yourself within a scripture scene uh, and to see what comes up, you know, by way of emotions or feelings or desires. And it can be very transformative. So, for example, you take a simple passage like uh, the storm at sea, Jesus calming the storm at sea. You would ask the person, you know, on on your own or maybe in a guided meditation, uh, you know, imagine yourself on the boat with Jesus. You know, what do you see, first of all? You know, what's the boat look like? What What do the disciples look like? What's Jesus look like? What do you hear? You know, what are the waves like? What do you feel? You feel the cold water on your back. Uh, what do you smell? Is there a smell of fish? Um, and you know what, what? What do you what do you experience in terms of like what you're wearing? And and you basically trust that God's going to uh, be with you because you know God created your imagination and it's an entree into uh, experiencing God. And you notice what happens. And oftentimes, not always, uh, some pretty amazing things can come up. For example, you know you see Jesus asleep in the boat. And you start to realize, wow, you know, why is he asleep? Doesn't he care? You might connect it with something in your own life. You know, why is Jesus asleep? Why does not God not care about me right now? You see him do the miracle and still the storm, and you say to yourself, wow, you know, that's really beautiful. Are there times in my life where, you know, I was worried that God was asleep and things worked out okay? You know, do I need to have more trust? So, those kinds of feelings can come up. You know, just something as simple as I'm angry at God for being asleep can lead you into an uh, an encounter with God or a conversation with God, which can be very healing for people. So mm. it's a really powerful way to pray. It's not for everybody. Not everybody likes it. Some people like more content-less prayer, like centering prayer, which is just kind of quiet. But, uh, you know, that it's the primary way I pray. And for most people, it's really transformative. Uh, can I tell you a quick story about that? Yeah, sure. Um I was on um, a radio show with uh, Cardinal Dolan, who's the Archbishop of New York, and he was interviewing me. And he told me about one of his experiences with Ignatian contemplation, where he was at the nativity scene, and he said he was on a Jesuit retreat, and uh, he was to imagine himself in the stable. And he said at one point uh, in his imagination, in his meditation, uh, Mary handed him the baby Jesus, the infant Christ, and he just looked at it, and it was this kind of profound moment for him. And I said to him, uh, and you know what? I bet the next time you read the nativity story, it was totally different. And he said, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens. It, mm-hmm. You know, you are able to enter into it. And so the scripture scene becomes your scripture scene, uh, and it becomes very personal. So it's really beautiful. And, uh, you know, to encounter Christ through your imagination that way and just to trust that God is at work that way. It's not like you're making anything up or you have visions or anything like that, but to just imagine yourself there uh, and to trust that God is at work through that can be really transforming for people. They they feel that they've encountered the story or experienced the story as they never have before. It's kind of interesting um, as I hear you talking about it. It's, it's kind of like a contemplative, um, visual Christian form of midrash, right? <laughs> Jewish midrash, mm-hmm. which is about kind of it reading is. between the lines. It's kind of like about, <clears throat> about visualizing between the lines in order to understand the, the words better. Well, and also, yeah, you also notice things that you would have not noticed. Right. Uh, I did a meditation with a group uh, a year or two ago, and it was the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And in one of the uh, stories where Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes and feeds the crowds, there's a little boy who brings, you know, five barley loaves and two fish. And 
this one woman in this this group I was um, uh, you know facilitating said, "I never noticed that little boy." She said, "I've read this story you know probably hundreds of times and heard mm-hmm. it at mass. I never knew he was there." And she said, "And I I spent time just looking at him." And noticing how he was able to bring what little he had to Jesus. And that was her insight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, her insight was, you know, we bring what little we have and Jesus takes it and multiplies it and magnifies it. So so there's just like insights, too, that happen that just simply don't come when you're reading it on your own, or at least they come in a different way. And, I mean, you know, I've been a Jesuit for 26 years now, and that's happened to me uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and I've heard it in direction, and I've heard it in from either Jesuit brothers, and it's astonishing. I mean, it, it, the, the gospels become your own, uh, and it's great. I mean, you know, you you feel like you you get to know Jesus, and that's the that's the goal of Ignatian spirituality in the end. Tell tell me <clears throat> tell me what you mean when you say and when you write um, the way of Ignatius was about finding freedom. How are you using that word? Well, Ignatius. Uh, wanted us uh, to be free of anything that kept us from following God. Uh, he called them disordered attachments. And the idea is that uh, if anything keeps you from you know, being more open to God's will in your life, get rid of it, basically. Uh, a simple example, when I was a Jesuit novice, uh, first part of the uh, Jesuit training, I went into my novice director, and we were supposed to be assigned to different ministries working with the poor for the first year of our novitiate. And I said, well, you know what? The last thing I want to do, <laughs> I said, is work in a hospital. I don't think I could stand that, the smells and the sights and the sounds. And he said, well, good. Then you'll be working in a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and why is he doing that? It wasn't to punish me. It was to kind of free me up from that. You know, so you know, his insight was, which is a very classic Jesuit insight, if that is something that's going to be preventing you from you know, meeting people and from doing your ministry, you need to let go of it. And the way to let go of it in this case was to kind of experience it. And I, you know, now I can go into hospitals and you know, imagine a priest who was you know, so unfree that he couldn't set foot in a hospital you know, or a Jesuit who couldn't So is that. that this concept of agera contra <clears throat> yes. to act yeah. against? Which mm-hmm. at, the, I, you know, I, I, at the end of your um, – <clears throat> sorry. At the end of your book, um, The Jesuit Guide to Nearly Everything – you said in this interview you wished you'd written more about that. And I think that's what you just described, isn't it? That sometimes, in fact, we have to act against our instincts to do what we actually really want to do, right? Yeah, yeah. So Adre Contra, uh, to act against, is exactly that. And it's a way of freeing yourself up. And it sounds, you know, it, sound, it can sound kind of masochistic, but it's basically, it's confronting those fears, uh, not simply for the sake of confronting them to kind of, you know, show how strong you are and master them. But to let go of it, yeah. uh, you know, Ignatius wanted us to be free. Uh, and, you know, so, for example, um, you know, I have people that come to me that say that, you know, I'm really obsessed with status or power or, uh, you know, being well-known or money. And Ignatius would say, you know, are you too attached to that? Is that preventing you from, you know, living a free life? Uh, am I so attached to, you know, another example I always use with people is, am I too attached to my health? So, for example, let's say a good friend of mine is in the hospital. There's another hospital example. And I'm so attached to my health that I don't want to visit her. Well, that's not very free. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Ignatius says, can you be free of that? So in all these things, the desire is for freedom. And it's, it's actually not simply freedom from, it's also freedom for. Yeah. Uh, and the idea is we're freeing ourselves up for, uh, you know, for more love and for service to God. 
And, you know, for the Jesuit, it's freedom for mission, you know, to, to go on mission. There, there's, there's so much, I feel, in, um, in, in Ignatian spirituality that is just so resonant with now. Um, and I, maybe it's been resonant in every generation. But, <clears throat> you know, when I look also at, like, the paths to belief mm-hmm. um, that you lay out, uh, in an, uh, six paths to God. In a in a moment which I I think is just you know profoundly historic in that um, for the first time uh, in centuries if if not ever human beings are not inheriting their belief system anymore you know it used to mm-hmm. come kind of with your eye color and the house you lived in and the, the church or synagogue that your parents and grandparents had always gone to. And we've, you know, within just a couple of generations become disconnected from those things just being given to us at birth. And but this in the six paths to God, as we lay them out, I mean, belief is one of them. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. but the others are very uh, familiar, you know, disbelief, independence, return, exploration, confusion. Yeah, and that's that's just based on my experience with people. That's where they are and, you know, trying to accompany them. And, you know, I was on all those different paths at one time or another in my life. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who do grow up with a very strong belief system and, uh, you know, are born into a family that's very religious or very spiritual. But, you know, even those people, uh, I find in their 20s and 30s, often break off. You know, they have to kind of reappropriate it. But you're right, people are coming at it from different points of view. And I think that one of the strengths of Ignatian spirituality is is that it meets people where they are. Uh, it says, okay, you know, you're starting to be interested in God because of a book you read? Great. Let's start there. Let's start with your reading. Or you're interested in God because of uh, some movie you saw and it, it made you it made you moved or fine, let's start there. You know, we're, we're, what do you experience? What's your experience of that movie? Let's talk about that. It's very Ignatian and it's just very open because, again, it's finding God in all things. Mm. So you don't say, well, because you weren't in church when that happened, it doesn't count. You you meet the person where the person is as, you know, that's where God met me. God met me in, uh, you know, in an apartment in Stamford, Connecticut, watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't praying in church before a statue of Mary saying, please make me a priest. I was, I was tired at the end of the day, a terrible day. I just finished a bowl of spaghetti that I heated up and I was watching PBS. <laughs> and that's where God met me because that's where I was. Right. And so that's where we need to meet people, where they are. That's where Jesus met people. Jesus met people where they were. He didn't sit on his butt all day in Capernaum. He sat on his butt a little bit, and people came to him. But <laughs> most of the times, he went out, and he met people where they were. You know, if you're fishing, I'm going to go to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to say, follow me, and I will make you, you know, fishers of people. You know, I'm going to, use, I'm going to even use a, a phrase from your, from your argot basically. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. terrific. He meets everybody where they are, and that should be our model, too. Tell me what it, what it means for you <clears throat> to have a Jesuit now on the throne of St. Peter. Um. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's hard to put into words. It's great. Um, I think the most exciting part uh, is seeing him uh, invite people uh, into Jesuit spirituality without even using those words. I mean, he very rarely, he'll, he'll at, at times advert to St. Ignatius Loyola or the spiritual exercises, but he just does it in his own way. Uh, you know, uh, I think it was a year ago at his Easter Mass, um, 
he started talking about imagining yourself uh, on Easter Sunday morning running with the women to the tomb. It was a kind of Ignatian contemplation. He said, imagine what it would be like. And I was watching it with uh, my mom uh, at my sister's (laughs) house, you know, with her family. And my mom said, do you think he read your book? (laughs) And I laughed and I said, you know, this is Ignatian spirituality. We read some of the same books. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And, you know, in in other times, um, you know, he'll say, now close your eyes and let's imagine ourselves in this scene. And he will do what's, you know, called a guided meditation where you kind of invite the person into the scene, you know, imaginatively. It's all Ignatian spirituality. Yeah. Uh, and so to be able to, to, to see this kind of on a worldwide um, uh, level is, is just beautiful. Uh, and I just, I mean, I just love the guy. I mean, I, I think his emphasis on the poor is fantastic. I think meeting people where they are. And, you know, frankly, I think the key to understanding him is his Jesuit background. I mean, yeah. here's a guy who is free, you know, who does not have disordered attachments. And imagine, imagine if someone was so attached to having to do things that the way the way that they were done, for example, like living in the apostolic palace. He's not. He's free of that. I don't have to do that. <laughs> right. I'm free of that. He's free of the shoes as well, isn't he? I think. He's yes. He's free of the shoes. And mm-hmm. but but in, in all seriousness, imagine yeah. if he had said, "I must continue to do this." You know, Ignatius would say, "You know, are you are you being free? You know, mm-hmm. what what do you really need? What's necessary?" And mm-hmm. so I think we see someone who is profoundly. Jesuit and profoundly free, and uh, it's it's beautiful. I I find him very inspiring. Um, he he makes me want to be a better Jesuit, a better priest, a better Catholic, a better Christian, and a better person. Hmm. So you know, across the years, I've interviewed a fair number of Jesuits, mm-hmm. and they've been really different people. You know, they've been <laughs> astronomers, they've been social activists. Um, you know the old expression, if you've met one Jesuit, you've met one Jesuit? <laughs> no, I, I did not know that. But I, what I was yeah. going to say is the, the one thing they all have in common is they're funny. Okay. <laughs> really. They have all had a great sense of humor. Well, I hope so. Um, I mean, there are a few unfunny Jesuits. <laughs> well, I'm sure there are. That, you know, let's say more serious. But, um, you know, I, I would hope that part of that is perspective. Uh, you know, one of the things that... <laughs> that the spiritual exercises and Jesuit formation teaches you is that uh, you are not perfect. Um, <laughs> the beginning of the spiritual exercises is actually a, an encounter with your own sinfulness, you know, which is not that, you know, it's, it's to make you feel terrible about yourself because we're all God's creations, but we're all human beings. We all have sins. We all have flaws and failures and things like that. Um, and that's very humbling uh, to be able to to see that about yourself. And I think that gives you uh, a lot of perspective, um, and it means that uh, that you can laugh at yourself. My spiritual director always likes to say, you know, it's 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 harder to get puffed up about yourself when you have a good uh, idea of your own failings and your humanity and your sinfulness. My spiritual director likes to say, "There's good news and there's better news." Do you know this, by the way? Have no. you heard this? No. The good news is there is a Messiah. The better news is it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not all up to you. Uh, you know, you're not the savior of the world. You don't have to do everything. Uh, and you're flawed. Uh, and you will come up and I come up against my sinfulness and my flaws and my struggles daily. Uh, I really do. And I don't mean that as like false humility. That is true. And that keeps you 
humble, I think. And I think that means you can laugh at yourself. And well, most Jesuits are pretty good at laughing at themselves. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the last part of that, that I've, I've met a lot of Jesuits who are good at laughing at themselves. I mean, it's, it's also, it can cut both ways, though, you know. I mean, you, you know, you've pointed out, you've written a whole book about joy and laughter and humor and and you said, and I think we can all we can all identify. I've come across a surprising number of spiritually aware people who are, in a word, grim, and that yeah. joylessness is, you know, it's ecumenical interfaith. It's, <clears throat> it's yeah, a, the frozen chosen, the frozen chosen. Yeah, yeah. but you, well, um, well, yeah. go on, go on. No, I was going to say that um, you know it's also very unChristian. I mean, the the, the ultimate message of of the Gospels and of Christianity is uh, Christ has risen, right? I mean, that's that's the end of the story. And that's a that's a joyful message. I always laugh at people who, uh, you know, who say, well, you know, joy is really, you know, not too much joy, not too much happiness. And I say, you know, imagine the disciples on Easter Sunday. Do you think they were going around with long faces? Um, and Jesus himself, you know, lived a joyful life. You can see signs of that in the Gospels in terms of his clever parables and his funny stories. And you know, for Pete's sake, his his first miracle was at a party, a wedding party. Mm-hmm. You know, so Where there he was is a good there boy is a, and did what his mother told him to do. And that's that's right. <laughs> um, that's what I appreciate so, about that story. Although he's pretty he's pretty harsh with his mother. That's a that's a that's a great story. But he did turn the water into wine. He did eventually. If he'd been um, thinking about his legacy, you know, he might not well, have know, had that as his first miracle. But his mother asked him to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's I never thought of that. Right, okay. he wanted another first miracle. <laughs> I'm doing a I'm doing an Ignatian. You know, I'm being in the story. You know what? And, I'm, I'm taking... and you know what? And you know what's great about that? What yeah. you just said. Who knows? That could have been it. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that comes up in Ignatian contemplation. You focus on Mary, and you say, you know, yeah. for example, in the wedding feast of Cana, what is she thinking? Um, and you know, you can get into the story and say, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, who knows? I, I heard a very funny preacher um, who once said that uh, that story of the wedding feast at Cana where, you know, Jesus brings his disciples and they say we've run out of wine is actually kind of funny because it sounds like it's the disciples that have caused the, you know, kind of <laughs> right, they want more of to wine. Drink. Yeah. Uh, and the mo- his mother says, um, you know, um, they've run out of wine. And he says quite harshly, woman, what concern is that of yours and of mine? And she says... Uh, very sort of her last words in scripture, do whatever he tells you. He yeah, says, she says right. that to the steward. And a friend of mine uh, was preaching on this and he said, you know, you can hear that as do whatever he tells you, this kind of beautiful uh, kind of sign to us that, that Mary says, you know, we need to do whatever her son tells us. Or you can hear it as a kind of frustrated mother saying, just do whatever he tells you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't. So they are both possible. Um, they're both possible. But yeah, it, it, he's a joyful person, and I think we—if we miss the joy in Christianity, we are—we are missing the point. And um, you happen to be uh, the chaplain of the Colbert Nation, according to Stephen Colbert himself. Yes, well, until the show ends. Um, well, no, you know. but I mean, here's the question I want to ask you that I, I know everybody will be wondering about if you will preside over his installation at the Late Show. <laughs> uh, I always say if he invites me, I will come. <laughs> I, am, I am free enough. <laughs> Plus, funny enough, it's like two blocks away from my Jesuit community, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, sorry. I, I, uh, I do always, uh, I do pay attention to language and how, you know, a lot of the words that we 
most need get a little bit messed up in in the way they get used. And you know, when you talk about, I feel like you know the the way you're talking about joy and laughter and humor is <clears throat> it's not exactly the way we use the word happiness. I mean, I just mm-hmm. it seems to me it's kind of like the difference between hope and optimism. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I think that uh, joy is different than happiness. Uh, Joy uh, is happiness in God. Joy has an object. Joy is about a relationship. Uh, happiness, you know, it, it can be very evanescent. Uh, it can, you know, come one day and leave the next. Um, but joy is a lot deeper than that. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you something. Um, I had a friend of mine who just died a few days ago, uh, just this incredible Jesuit. His name was T.J. Martinez, and uh, he died of stomach cancer at age 44, and... Um, he, mm-hmm. even towards the end, was joyful. And I mean that in the most, sort of the fullest way. Uh, it wasn't fake. Uh, it wasn't insincere, but he was joyful. Uh, and, um, you know, towards the end of his life, uh, he sent me a message through a friend saying, you know, the last six years of my life, he had worked in a, a, a school for uh, poor children in Houston called the Cristo Ray School that he founded. He said, the last six years, of my, six years of my life have been my best assignment ever. And he said, my next assignment will be even better. You know, mm. and he, just, he would send me these texts that were joyful. And so why is that? Was, was TJ happy about having cancer? No, not at all. Uh, but he was in relationship with God, and uh, he, he had this trust, and he had this experience of joy. And so that's, that's the difference, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, joy is much deeper. And that's what we're called to. You know, we're called to Christian joy. You know, Thank God, you know. The people who this 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 theme of humor as a humor as a virtue and and humor as a kind of mark of God, you know, also is something that's that's run through um my life of conversation and and I think it's just most profoundly embodied in Desmond Tutu. Mm-hmm. Who first of all just again embodies it. He just mm-hmm. you know, he, and he demonstrates exactly. it, and and he so he is just he he laughs mm-hmm. infectiously and easily and often, and um mm-hmm. and he said to me, you know, God has a sense of humor, and the thing is, if Desmond Tutu tells you something about God, you just you believe him. <laughs> I mean, right? So I yes. I mean, I just I pass this yeah. on, but um. But but then if you think about it more deeply, you know, how how remarkable that is. I mean, that joy that radiates mm-hmm. from him. Um, yeah, and it's Christian joy. And I think that, you know, this is what draws people to Christianity. Uh, and I think this is what drew people to Jesus. Uh, you know, Jesus would have been a joyful person uh, and, you know, would have laughed and, and had friends and, you know, went to wedding parties. And, you know, one point of the Gospels... Uh, he says, now, you're calling me a glutton and a drunkard. You know, and I asked a scripture scholar about that, and they said, i.e., Jesus is being critiqued for living it up. You know, so so he was seen as too joyful mm-hmm. in his time. But, yeah, we're drawn to people like that. And the people who are most in touch with God are those who are joyful and vice versa. Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a quality in them. I mean, you see it in Pope Francis. Yeah. Um, you know, you see it in like the Dalai Lama. I mean, yeah, he's laughing he's all the time. Funny, yeah. And it's beautiful. And mm-hmm. and it's I think it's a sense not only of trust and hope in the resurrection, you know, for the Christian, you know, or belief in God, you know, for the believer, 
but also a sense of perspective and and just the joy of life. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I yeah, I, when I'm around people like that uh, who are connected with God, I find we laugh a lot. Yeah, you know, which is just beautiful. Yeah, that was actually actually one of the. You know, I I started thinking about <clears throat> about creating this show. Um, actually, back in the late nineties, and and mm-hmm. actually, this is not going to be on the air. But I was doing a, I did an oral history project for St. John's Abbey, those Benedictines oh, in Collegeville. Them. Yeah, I love them. Who were so amazing, and um, mm-hmm. so this was the era of, uh, you know, talk about the the. The image of grim, judgmental, uh, mm-hmm. not, you know, religiosity and Christianity in particular it was kind of the era of, you know, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and, mm-hmm. and, and them being being given this platform by by American journalism and kind mm-hmm. of asked the questions in the most inflammatory way and then delivering the most <laughs> inflammatory statements. Mm. Um, but then these Benedictines sent me off on this oral history project and... You know, one you know one of the things that I noticed about these conversations I was having is that they were so interesting and intellectual mm-hmm. and you know just fascinating, listenable, but also funny. And there was yeah. so much laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a religious voice that anyone was hearing or even even able at that point to imagine was possible, at least in public. Well, I think you're right, and I think you know when you hear someone's religious, you think that they're boring or grim. I was uh, walking up uh, Madison Avenue the other day. I live in New York and uh, I was, you know, sometimes you overhear these snatches of conversation. These two guys, these two young executives were talking and uh, (laughs) the one said, yeah, I got to meet my girlfriend's mother this weekend. She's really religious. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, that doesn't sound like a compliment, Yeah, you know, versus, you know, like, you know, Pope Francis or Desmond Tutu or the Dalai Lama. I mean, they're religious, but it's not like you're you know, uh, you know, terrified to meet them. Uh, and it is, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of uh, how we view God and for the Christians, how we view Jesus, because we have viewed Jesus as the man of sorrows primarily, mm. you know, and you go into a Catholic church, you know, into the, yeah. you know, my denomination. All those depressing. You, well, you see <laughs> yeah. Jesus on a cross, which yeah. is very important. I always tell people, but that is a part of his life. Uh, You know, most of his life was, needless to say, not on the cross and not about suffering. Uh, And so he's the man of joys, too. And and you see statues of the saints and they all look ticked off. You know, they all look like they're mad about something or they smelled a piece of bad cheese. And what that does is it subtly influences how we see holiness in our own lives. You know, because if Jesus and the saints were morose and dull and you know, overly pious, and as Pope Francis said, look like they went around sucking on a lemon, uh, then we're, we're like that too. And, uh, you know, uh, as a result, we think that when people are joyful and happy, they're somehow not religious or they're not serious. Right. <laughs> you know, when I did this book on joy uh, and humor and laughter, I was stunned to find, you know, the number of books on humor and laughter in the Christian tradition are, you know, maybe like, fill like half a shelf because it's not seen as, Important. Now, you go to the Christian uh, section of your library and look up suffering. Well, you know, there you go. You know, you can read from now until kingdom come. Yeah, I know. But also, that here's where you get, there's a difference between, I think there's a lot of religious jokes, I think, don't tend to be very funny. Um, but that's oh, not the same as oh, humor. Really? 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I know some pretty great religious oh, jokes. Okay. Well, another time. <laughs> another time. Let's see if we have time at the end of this interview. You can tell sure. us. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you know, to me, this does um, touch on something I want to ask you about. Um, that something you've said that that the way you think about friendships can mm-hmm. help you think about and deepen your relationship with God. Absolutely. And uh, it's it's usually the most clarifying way for people to start to think about a relationship with God. And the idea is that, uh, you know, friendship is an analog with a relationship with God. So, for example, um, what makes a good friendship? What, what What is required? Well, time, for example. You know, you would scarcely say, I'm good friends with this person and never spend any time one-on-one with him or her. Well, what about your relationship with God? You spend one-on-one time with God? You know, is there time... How about honesty? You know, what happens if you're not honest in a friendship? Well, it starts to grow cold or formal or, you know, very distant. Same with God. If we're not honest in prayer about what we feel about our struggles, our anger, our sorrows, our relationship gets very cold and distant. How about listening? You know, if you had a friend that all you did was talk at, you know, that wouldn't be a very deep friendship. Can you listen to God's voice in your daily life and in your prayer? So, um, this is a, an insight from um, Father William Barry, uh, who's a Jesuit um, in New England. And it's been very helpful for me. And it really helps people because it really gets their, uh, their spiritual life kind of back on track. Uh, you know, can you relate to God uh, in a similar way that you relate to a friend? You know, time, honesty, openness, silence. Are you comfortable with... Uh, Silence. Does, yeah, and, does your friend have to call I, you, you know, every day and say, I like you? <laughs> right, right. Or also companionable silence, right? Just yes. the, just the being able to, the people you're closest to, you don't have to be talking all the time or have them talking to you. Yeah, you know, I always use the example of if you're quiet with God in prayer, you know, this is sort of the, I would say the opposite of Ignatian contemplation, centering prayer, which just, which is just, centering prayer is just being in the presence of God, simply put. Can you imagine that like taking a long walk on a beach with a friend and saying nothing? You know, I mean, is that any less of a relationship or relating uh, than if you're talking over a dinner? No, it's just a different way of relating. I'll tell you a story. When I was in the novitiate, uh, I was praying and I wasn't using Ignatian contemplation. I wasn't in some great scripture scene. It was just me kind of quietly being in God's presence. And I went to my spiritual director, who was a great Jesuit, and uh, I said, uh, I feel like I'm wasting time. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm just kind of in God's presence. Not much is happening. And he said to me, okay, Jim, let me get this straight. So being in God's presence is for you a waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of opened my, my eyes up to the fact that, as you're saying, a companionable silence and presence is fine. It's just a different way of relating to God. And you can pray. There's no right way to pray or wrong way to pray. That's another great insight of Ignatian spirituality. Whatever helps you feel closest to God is great. Hmm. You know, and the other thing is, it's like saying, uh, okay, I like to go out with my friend for dinner every Friday night. You know, and we, 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 go to a, we go to dinner, then we go to a movie, then we go out for a drink and we talk. And that's what we do. And you say, that's great. That's a great way of relating to a friend. And then that person says to you, and that's the way you should relate to all of your friends at all times. Hmm. So, well, that's crazy. You know, so different ways of relating are like different ways of praying. You know, not everyone has to do it the same way. And you might want to do it uh, in a different way at a different time of your life. Right. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, it, it's very that, – that's – can you be free of that too? You know, can you be free of even the kinds of uh, ways of prayer that you use? So, you know, 
you get caught up occasionally in, um, oh, the conversations that are happening now, and there's always some version of this um, about you know progressive progressivists and traditionalists, you know, within Catholic tradition, and some of the things mm-hmm. that Pope Francis is doing and saying, and you know, shift things that are shifting in the culture, and but. I don't really want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about the, the details of that. Mm-hmm. I, what, I'm interested, though, and this really, really came at me again. I mean, it's something I've been aware of for a while, but it came at me again reading you um, that the Catholic Church uh, has, has, has always been this multitudinous, you know, this, this thing that is a multiplicity rather than something homogeneous. I mean, and, and, and a lot of that has been embodied in these monastic orders is incredible mm-hmm. diversity i mean i remember this mm-hmm. um evangelical richard mao a christian philosopher oh, yeah. mm-hmm. who was the president of fuller seminary and they had 122 mm-hmm. protestant denominations at fuller they probably they probably have catholics That's, there too i didn't but know there were that many That's yeah, amazing. but i remember him saying to me once that he it, he looks at catholicism and sees denominations as well um it's just that it's franciscans and dominicans and jesuits and i mean all these multitudinous orders which all have their <clears throat> their virtues that they live into and their insights that they live into and their practices with a particular passion, um, and I guess so. I guess I'm just I just have, you know thinking about some of the ways we talk about oh I don't know division and schism and mm-hmm. change. Um, in fact, um, monastic orders in particular have always been a representation of. Uh, of things going on in the center and things going on in the margins and something that's alive. <laughs> well, I think that's true. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, James Joyce once said the Catholic Church is here comes everybody, hmm. uh, which I think is terrific. And I think uh, Richard Mao is right. Uh, there are lots of ways of being Catholic, and that makes sense. It's always been that and way. And there always I mean, have the, been, right, for a long, absolutely. long time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, look at the disciples. There, there are different ways of being uh, a disciple. Not all the disciples are exactly the same. You know, one's a tax collector, one's a fisherman, you know, several are fishermen. Uh, and so they were fighting all the time. I mean, Peter fights with Paul. There's a great line from a uh, letter from St. Paul where he says, I went to Jerusalem to speak to Peter because he was clearly wrong. <laughs> Which is, and I say to people, you don't expect there's going to be divisions in the church now, you know, and right. these are people that, you know, had the opportunity of actually, you know, being with Jesus. Um, I think the great thing is there are places for everybody in the Catholic Church. And, you know, even in parishes, you know, there are parishes that might be more progressive, more traditional, more this, more that, more interested in social justice, more interested in, you know, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. You know, these are all parts of the church. You can find a place for yourself, which I think is beautiful. It's always been that way. And I think the the danger is uh, when people say, this is the only way to be Catholic. Now, I mean, obviously, there's certain non-negotiables and there's certain essentials in terms of the creed and what and, we believe. And that is but, also, that's a, that's, a, that's a human way of being, right? I mean, we all do that. With, that's a that's yeah. a, that's an impulse we have, whatever we're talking about. But Well, it's like, you know, once again, it's the relationship model and the friendship model with God, you know? Um, does everyone have to relate to God in the same way? No. Let's, you know, let's look at um, a person who's uh, in your life like a, a mother or a father, you know, or an aunt or an uncle. You know, you love that person. Do you have to relate to that person in the same way that everyone else in your family does? Can there be things that you like about that person that's kind of your special connection with him or her? 
you know, you like to talk about, you know, knitting or cats or gardening or something like that that no one else likes to, that's fine. You know, it's just a different way of relating. So, you know, God is big enough, you know, God is larger than we can imagine. And, uh, and so the church should be large too and be, you know, and be a big tent. Uh, Pope Francis used the image of a field hospital, which I thought was great, where the, the flaps are open and people are coming in and out. Mm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great image. And the, the other even greater image is uh, the body of Christ, you know, St. Paul's image where he says, you know, we're all like a body. The whole church is like a body. Some of us are like the hand. Some of us are like the head. And what if the eye were to say to the hand, I don't need you? <laughs> it's, it's a great image. So it, it makes sense. And I, I think it's wonderful. And as I said, the, the only problem is when people say, when the eye says to the hand, you know, you don't belong here. Mm-mm which happens from time to time, mm-hmm. unfortunately. You know, you write in a very winsome way about being monastic and being a modern person and, <clears throat> and also um, not in a, in a tell-all way, but I think you, you are revealing and you're writing to a, to a broad audience. So, you know, so, you know it's taken by um, a place in one of your writing where, you, you know, you say that when you were Becoming a Jesuit, um, you said you said you're not monastic, right? Is that right? Am I getting that? Am I well, not? I'm I'm not a monk. You're not um, a monk, so, but, but it is yeah, a monastic so, order, right? It's, well, no, no, not really. Not? Um, so there are monastic orders, which would be you know cloistered and living in monasteries. Yeah. Um, but we're more we're religious order is kind of the broader term. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, I'm sorry, I've been getting that's that okay. wrong. But but no, it is okay. You know, I, I didn't know that before I entered the Jesuits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I was conflating religious orders and monastic yeah. orders. Yeah, um, no, that's okay. But, um, but anyway, so that when you were becoming a Jesuit, someone said to me, one of your teachers or mentors said, you know, you will fall in love, right? You're taking, mm-hmm. you're taking this vow of celibacy, but you will fall in love. And you said you did fall in love. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, I think that's important um, for people to hear, to humanize uh, this, this way of, of life that you've chosen and that many other people of great integrity have chosen across time. Yeah, I also think it's important for people to hear. I think, uh, you know, when you enter the religious order, you don't, you know, check your sexuality at the door. Uh, You fall in love. And my novice director said, and if people don't fall in love with you, something's wrong, Hmm. you know, because you're living a loving life and we're we're human beings. And actually, I was horrified. I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, what if I fall in love? And not that love is a bad thing, but this would be terrible and and I did. I fell in love in a very deep way. Um, and, uh, you know, I had to make a decision. You know, my spiritual director at the time, which was, you know, really helpful and human and real, and I've, you know, had this experience with people coming to me, said to me, okay, you know, you fell in love and it's beautiful and someone fell in love with you and that's beautiful too. And, you know, now you have to make a choice. You know, do you continue with this, this way of life? right? Which is about chastity and loving people um, freely and deeply, but not exclusively. That's how we say it, you know, not, you know, just one person. Or do you choose to leave, you know, and continue this relationship with this person? So I chose to stay, you know, after looking back on my life and seeing how happy I was as someone who was living chastity. So, you know, I, I, I thought it was really important to put that in the book because it's true, first of all. Um, it was an experience of discernment um, but it's also, uh, as you say, it kind of dispels these notions that, uh, you know, that, that, that people don't fall in love. I mean, it happens to married people. 
right? right. right. People yeah. that, are, that are commi- yeah. committed relationships. And it, it's kind of the same thing. It's, okay, now what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, now you're given a choice. What do you do? Um, and, you know, it was a gift to me in the end. I mean, it was very turbulent, um, obviously. But it was a gift to me because it, uh, it was beautiful to fall in love and have someone fall in love with you. But it was also a gift of discernment, and it also helps me understand people. Yeah. You know, as does, by the way, on a more practical level, just having worked in a much more kind of simple level. I mean, just being out in the world and earning a paycheck. So I I tend to think that it's better for priests and religious people and religious orders to have those experiences before they enter so that when someone says, my boss is a jerk, you know, you don't just say, oh, well, you know, you must pray for him or her. (laughs) Offer it up. Right. You right. know, right. you can, you know what that means. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm struggling with my paycheck or I'm worried about losing my job or I've fallen in love or I've fallen out of love or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm having an affair. You know, it's important to, you know, Jesus became human, right? Jesus, Jesus participates in humanity. And so we're called to participate in humanity. And I always say to people, you know, there's a reason Jesus didn't come down as a book. And I mean, he came down as a person. He incarnates himself. And so we're called to to kind of identify and participate in people's lives like that. And, and you also suggest that um, that these that these high um, these monastic or these these high religious virtues like chastity, uh, you know, you say that loving chastely is a virtue um, that that others can claim even in, in even in married lives. Um, yeah, all, all three of the vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience, and they're all about freedom. Um, you know, poverty is, is being freed of the need for, you know, acquiring things and to try to be as free as possible so that things don't own you, which I like to quote Fight Club, you know, that uh, avatar <laughs> of uh, spiritual wisdom. I actually like that movie because, you know, it, things claim you, things own you. Can you be free of that? Obedience is kind of being open to God's will, whatever that is, you know, surrendering to the future. Uh, and chastity, yeah, it's loving people freely and deeply without, you know, holding on to them. And you can be a married person and, you know, and that, this is Christian tradition and love chastely. You know, it's a proper use of your sexuality. So you love the person, you're, you, you want the best for them, but you don't possess them. You know, they're not yours to kind of possess. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, in a sense, it's the proper use of your sexuality. And for someone like me in a religious order, um, I love people freely and deeply without being, uh, you know, exclusively related and, you know, obviously not, um, you know, having sexual relationships. So as a result, I mean, it really works for me. I have a lot of, you know, deep and loving and intimate friendships with both men and women that I think, not that it's better, I really want to underline that, it's not better or worse than being married. That's the way it used to be seen. It's just different. Mm -hmm. It's a different way of doing things. But yes, everyone can love chastely. And that's one of the things I try to talk about in the book. Um, so you're very active on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as well. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I just would love to hear how you think about uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola's call to find God in all things um, and how that works for you uh, on, in, this, in social media, in these 21st well, century places. Con- yeah, I mean, you know, we're, you know uh, one of the um, uh, things that Pope Paul VI said to the Jesuits, I think, was that you are to be found on the boundaries all the time, on the margins. And Pope mm-hmm. Francis said that to us. Uh, and so we're called to be on the boundaries. And, you know, uh, this is where people are. 
you know. And so I have this public Facebook page and Twitter account and Instagram, which is I'm new to. This is where people are. Well, I so think, if you want to, yeah, one in six people on the globe now is on Facebook. I heard recently, so it's not even the <laughs> margins anymore. Yeah, well, that's true too. That's We're on the point. margins here on public radio. That's, okay, let's let's be clear. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, well, at least Instagram is on the margins. Okay, um, Instagram is on the margins. But no, that's where people are, and I I actually see it as kind of a ministry. I really do. Um, particularly this uh, public Facebook uh, account I have. It's a way of. Um, uh, sort of inviting people to see um, articles or videos that they might not know about. You know, I work at America Magazine, which is a media ministry of the Jesuits, and so we get a lot, we're kind of a clearinghouse for things. So I try to mix it up in terms of uh, evening meditations and prayers, videos, you know, not my own, but, you know, other people's articles, and to just show people the riches of the faith uh, and to help them a little bit. And, you know, the number of messages I get from people about you know, their gratitude for being able to find something on my page is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I really enjoy it. And by the way, it doesn't take a whole lot of time, you Mm -hmm. know, just maybe half an hour to an hour a day. I mean, a lot of it is kind of cleaning up the comments, which are kind of crazy. Um, But it's great. And then every morning I tweet out a 140-character homily for people Mm -hmm. um, just for the heck of it. And I always say to people, people, uh, you know, this, uh, I won't say who, this uh, This person came up to me after Mass and said, you know, I don't think it's really appropriate that you, you know, are tweeting and you're kind of, you know, kind of denigrating the gospel. And I looked up all the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor. But they're all under 140 characters. <laughs> <laughs> and I tweeted them out one day just to kind of, you know, show people that you could say things with substance in less than 140 characters. Yeah. You know, Jesus did, and so why shouldn't we? But really, the point is that's where people are. And so why not go where they are? Mm-hmm. So, so we're talking around Christmas time. I think mm-hmm. we're going to be airing this the day, the, the week of that weekend. Well, it'll go live, like, on Christmas Day. And we'll be oh, airing. nice. Yeah. Um, we're talking around Christmas time, and... I've, I'm I'm actually not a big Christmas person, mostly because mm-hmm. I just am so discouraged by what mm-hmm. what's happened to it, what we've done well, that to makes it. Two of us. And and it's not even. I mean, the commercial thing is is part of it, and the the compulsory gifts and all that. But but it's also, um, you know, I I hate the way uh, this is strong language, but I I dislike. No, I, I, I think you know, I agree with you. Yeah, I di- I dislike the way the Christmas story. Um, is has also just been turned into a children's story, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. the children's pageant, and and it does mm-hmm. lend itself to that. But I, I yeah, feel, which we don't do with the crucifixion, for example. No, you don't. And I and I and I don't. You know, I just I just feel like this. Even even in churches, the story itself um, doesn't have its fullness. Uh, I just wanted to well, ask I think you. It's, about... I think it's been. I think it's been tamed. Mm-hmm. It's not only been commodified and commercialized, but it's also. It's not only been commodified and commercialized. It's been tamed. Mm-hmm. It's a nice, pretty story about you know two nice, good-looking people, usually white. Um, yeah. You know, had a pretty baby uh, in a manger, but in a sense, it's a uh, it's a terrifying story. Uh, you know, in terms of what they had to undergo. And it's also, I have to say, it is a shocking story. Um, it's not just a baby. It is God being born in human form. Uh, and it's just as shocking as the resurrection. And I think we've, we've tamed it. Um, and it, in a sense, it doesn't, 
demand our belief. We can just kind of look on it and say, well, that's cute. Mm-hmm. You know? But if you say to people, do you believe that, uh, that that is God incarnate in that stable? You know, what does that mean for you? That God comes to us as the most helpless being that you could imagine. You know, sort of crying and wetting his pants and, uh, you know, needing uh, to be nursed. What does that say to us about who God is for us and how God is for us and how much God loved us to do that? And that, I think, is an entirely different story than, you know, the the kind of Christmas cardy stuff that we see. So it's been tamed. And, and the reason is, I think, um, it's too... It's too frightening, in a sense, to have to make that assent, to say yes to that, to the nativity and to the incarnation, which is shocking. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's shocking for people. So we set it aside. Um, and and, and I, actually, I have to say, I am, like, really getting to the point where I'm starting to loathe the Christmas season. The yeah. commercialism makes me... Um, I saw Chris Rock recently on Saturday night. I don't know if you saw him and... He was talking about Jesus' birthday season, and he says, you know what? We have taken the person who's probably the least commercial person who's ever lived and turned his birthday into And he said, not just his birthday, but there's a whole season around it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I turned on the TV the other day, and I saw an advertisement for Mary Techmas from Walmart. I thought, oh, for Pete's sake, you know, at least can oh, at least God, I just put got the, it the word. Yeah, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's there's mm-hmm. that. But but I think on a deeper level, what you're pointing to is we we've tamed the story, and uh, it's just kind of cute now. Yeah, well, it's what so we I, do with Jesus and the saints. Sorry, what? It's what we do with Jesus and the saints. Right. Jesus is kind of this nice guy, and he loves people, and saints are really holy, and versus Jesus was the Son of God who was crucified and rose from the dead and is now alive. And the saints are people who committed their lives totally to Christ and would do anything for him. Versus Jesus is this kind of like hippie guy who I kind of like. And Francis of Assisi was this kind of cool hippie who I put, you know, in a garden, you know, as a little statue. I pat him on the head. <laughs> well, you know. You know, we do that. We do that with uh, current day saints, too. Someone like Dorothy Day, Mother Teresa. Right. You know, I mean, th- these are like, these are kind of signs of contradiction for us. And we tame them. It's easier that way. They don't make a claim on us then. Yeah, they're, all of these characters are like Thomas Merton, who we talked about at the beginning. What was that? What's the phrase used about him? Wonderfully complicated, full of wonderful mm-hmm. contradictions, mm-hmm. Um, but fully human, messily human. Yeah, and, and that's the th- I mean, the saints' lives are usually sanitized, uh, and they become the same. They're all the same. They all prayed the same way. They all did the same things, but... Very different. I mean, St. Peter is very different from Thomas Merton, who's very different from St. John the Twenty Third, who's very different yeah. from Francis of Assisi and St. Therese of Lisieux. And these are very different people. As Merton said, for me to be a saint means to be myself. Hmm. And I remember in the novitiate, um, there was a young novice who would get up in the morning at 6.30 and pray all the time. And I thought, well, gee, to be holy, I guess I have to do that. So I'd get up and I'd pray and I was falling asleep all the time. Hmm. And then there was another novice who was super quiet. So I thought, oh, I have to be really quiet and diffident and sort of soft-spoken. And my spiritual director said to me, what do you, what's wrong with you? You're so quiet. And I said, well, so-and-so's quiet and he's really holy. And he said, you know, in order to become holy, you don't become someone else. You know, you just become yourself. Hmm. So there's a sense that we forget that the saints were themselves too. And Jesus was himself. 
We tame them, take all the rough edges off of them, and we put them on a pedestal, and then they make no claim on us because we say, well, we can't possibly be like that. We can't be perfect like they were without any rough edges. So, so therefore, I don't have to be a saint. I don't have to try. And that's what happens, and that's how we let, our, let ourselves off the hook from holiness, from the call to holiness. Hmm. There's that question that, that Jesus asked his disciples, um, who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. You reflect and write about this. I, I, I want to ask you, and I, I think this is, I don't really think this is a fair question because it's such a big question, but, but you know, how would you begin to answer that question? Well, funny enough, <laughs> you just wrote I just spent my last retreat thinking about that question. <laughs> okay, so. well, share with us a little bit of what you came up with. I Sure. Um, healer and liberator is what comes up to me when I pray about that. Healer, the person who heals me from unfreedoms and, uh, you know, patterns that have kept me bound. Uh, and that's the same as liberator, the one who liberates me from all of those things. And certainly friend. Uh, friend. So I love that question. You know, who do you say that I am? He asked the disciples and they kind of hem and haw. Uh, and then he, he finally asked Peter, you know, who do you say that I am? And he says the Messiah. But I had a really interesting experience where uh, my spiritual director said to me, now I want you to ask Jesus that question in your prayer. So who do you say that I am? Jesus, Jesus. who do you say Jim Martin is? or who? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with it for a day or two. And it was really frustrating because I thought, you know, prayer's not always rich. I thought, Jesus, boy, you know, how about some help here? And so get this. So they had a healing service at the um, retreat house one night and we were all supposed to kind of sit down and people were supposed to pray over us. And um, this sister, I was sitting in the chair and thinking about this prayer and this question, who do you say that I am, Lord? Who am I for you? And the sister came up and put her hands on me. And after she prayed a prayer of healing over me, she leaned down. And this was not part of the script. You're not supposed to talk to people during this particular ceremony. She leaned into my ear and she said, know that you are God's beloved son. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Hmm. I went back to my seat and I had these images of myself as a young boy being loved by God and, you know, in my Cub Scout uniform and then in junior high school and high school. I'm being very personal right now. I'm sharing with you my retreat and all throughout my life and God loving me just for who I was, not really doing anything, but just who I was. Mm -hmm. So I I had this experience of God's loving me, which I'd never had before. And so who do you say that I am? That works both ways. And it did for me, but uh, yeah, healer and liberator and friend. So that was, that was my last, that, I just summed up my retreat in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it, sure. It just, yeah, I, but I just want to say something. Yeah. You know, we, we asked, we, we say, you know, how does God speak to us? You know, and that came through someone's voice, right. you know, and then a subsequent prayer experience. I didn't have a vision. I didn't hear God's voice, but I, I did hear God's voice through that, that sister who whispered that in my ear, who, you know, who knows why she was motivated to do that other than the Holy Spirit. So there are ways that we have of listening to God, I think, that are accessible to everybody. You know, if they're just open and aware. Hmm. Happens all the time. The creator deals directly with the creature, as St. Ignatius says. <laughs> back to St. Ignatius. I, yeah, I, always back to St. Ignatius. I, I did want to ask <laughs> There's an old you. joke that a Jesuit can't talk for 10 minutes without mentioning St. <laughs> Ignatius. I think you may have just gone 15 or 20, but... <laughs> Um, <laughs> I I did want to ask you actually um, 
you know, Pope Francis is uh, is a Jesuit, but he took the name Francis and not Ignatius. He did. And I he did. and I so we talked a little while ago about about how wonderful it was to be a Jesuit mm. and have him be Pope. But I wonder how what, what how does that make sense to you um, that he is uh, the taking Francis? of the name? Yeah, the taking of the name <laughs> for another well, for know, another order. Yeah, no, I you know I'm laughing because. At the beginning, uh, you know, the, the day he was elected, our Jesuit community was absolutely uh, astounded and tongue-tied uh, and confused and elated. And someone said, what about the name Francis? And, and someone said, well, he's clearly – it's St. Francis Xavier, you know, the Jesuit saint. And the next day he said, no, 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 no. Really? <laughs> Which is a, you know, it's, very, it's a very Jesuitical way of looking at it. Right. And, then, and the next day he said, no, no, it's Francis of Assisi because, you know, he wanted to – honor the poor and to kind of show his commitment to the poor. Um, I think it's actually pretty brilliant uh, because he's marrying Ignatian spirituality with Franciscan spirituality. And, he, you know, with that one gesture. Now, there is another example of Ignatian detachment or freedom. No one had ever taken that name before. Hmm. A less free man would have thought, I can't do that. I can't do that. You know, that's never been done before. He's free. You know, Jorge Mario Bergoli was free enough to say, I'm, I'm choosing Francis. And interestingly, he said that what had happened was a cardinal, before he was about to take the name, I guess as, as he was being elected, a cardinal Umes, I think, from Latin America, leaned over and said to him, don't forget the poor, mm. uh, before he accepted it. And so he's, then he says, I take the name Francis. And funny enough, one Jesuit in our community, I think I can share this, said, I wish he had taken Ignatius. And another Jesuit said, no, that would have been way too much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a Jesuit pope named Pope Ignatius would have been like, enough with the Jesuit spirituality. And funny enough, I thought that he was actually going to keep the Jesuits at arm's length at the beginning because I thought, well, he can't, you know, favor us too much. But he's been very warm to the Jesuits and has said mass in our churches in Rome and has talked about we Jesuits and... Which I, I just I just find delightful. I mean, I, I try not to get too caught up in the pride, the proud moment of you know having a Jesuit pope, but I just find him and his whole papacy delightful. Yeah, and you know, it, it's very interesting to me. Um, well, t- two things, and they they do seem to, I don't think they're the same, but they're coinciding a little bit. I've, I feel like there's this kind of universal, not universal, but there's a lot of love for St. Francis that's coming from all kinds of places, including all kinds of Protestants um, who, well, I mean, the history is not of Protestants loving the Pope, right? And, hmm, and, not and to it's, put it mildly. To put it mildly. And, um, and parts of Protestantism that, that have been most hostile to, to, to the Pope or most uh, suspicious of the Pope in Historically, um, and young people who are not at all religious, but uh, really in love with this pope. Yeah. Um, there's that, and then and then there's something that I think you also have your finger on the pulse of. I think I think Jesus is kind of making a comeback too, right? There's thank God. This, well, there's this fascination with the person of Jesus, which um, there is, which is not necessarily connected with uh, the church. Uh, or an experience of the church. Um, I'm, yeah, so I'm just, and I, I, again, here we are talking at Christmas. I just would be curious about your observations of well, that. Well, you know, I think the two are related. I think that uh, people are attracted to Pope Francis uh, because they find him an authentic Christian. And 
in him they see uh, signs of Christ, Christ's presence. And that kind of holiness is naturally attractive. Now, why is that? That's one way that God has of drawing us to God's self. We see holy people and we're, we're attracted to them. You know, people wanted to be around Mother Teresa or, or Pope John Paul or they want to be around Pope Francis, right? I want to be around Pope Francis. I'd love to meet him at some point. Why is that? It's not simply celebrity or fame or renown. It's holiness. It draws us. And that's one way that God has of drawing us closer, you know, to God. Uh, and that's one reason I think Jesus was so beset by crowds in the Gospels. You know, they say, you know, he had to withdraw from the crowds, you know, because they were pressing in on him. Why is that? Well, not only because he was offering them healing and because they wanted to hear his word, you know, and his preaching, but his holiness. It's a man. I would say to people this, okay, so you love Pope Francis and you're around him and you feel that he's very holy, right? Or you, you see pictures of him and you just want to be near him because he seems so holy. Imagine what it would have been like to be around Jesus. You know, imagine that. You know, and his magnetism and his charisma and just the, 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 the person of God. I love thinking about that. And so no wonder people wanted to be around him. So what they see in Francis is they see a, a window into Christ, uh, which is beautiful. That's what the church should be. church should be welcoming people into a relationship with Jesus. And that's what the Pope is trying to do. That's what all popes have trying to, tried to do. But I think this one has a special way of doing it. And I think it's because they find him very authentic and very relatable and personable. Hmm. I think some of that comes from his Jesuit background, not all of it, because, you know, we Jesuits, we'd be very careful about overemphasizing that. And, you know, he's this because he's a Jesuit, he's that because he's a Jesuit. But I do think there's something essential about his, uh, his sort of Jesuit freedom and his Ignatian detachment. He's free. He's with the poor. He's open to new things. He's open to new people. He's spontaneous. And that's a, that is the Jesuit ideal, the person who is free. And I think you see that. I think people are responding to that. And, and I'm just so happy. You know, he could be, look, he could be a Dominican, a Benedictine, a diocesan <laughs> priest, and I'd be happy that he was doing what he was doing. Yeah. He's just, because the important thing is he's bringing people to Jesus Christ, or at least getting them to think about him again. Mm. Um, so we do have a little bit of time. I don't, you said you had some jokes. <laughs> do you have any jokes about... Dominicans, Benedictines. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? You got like a hundred of them. <laughs> okay, um, so you said some of them are good. So tell us one that we would universally... Well, I wouldn't tell you my bad ones. I'm not going to tell you the bad ones. Um, <laughs> let me think. My favorite one. Um, let's see. Which one should I tell you? So, um, it's a very quick joke. Um, well, I'll, I'll make it quick. So a Franciscan and a Jesuit um, are driving together and they get into this big argument about who's the best religious order, you know, and why did Pope Francis take this name? And they get distracted and they hit a telephone pole and they go up to heaven. So they're dead and they're up in heaven and they're kind of bummed out because, you know, they're dead. Um, But they're in front of the pearly gates and uh, the gates open up and out rolls this red carpet in front of the Jesuit. And out come all these Jesuit saints, and they greet him, and St. Ignatius comes out, the founder of the Jesuits, and the Jesuits just amazed. And then a blue carpet rolls out, and Mary comes out, and she greets the Jesuit, and she's, he's amazed. You know, it's Mary coming out to greet him. And then a white carpet rolls out, and Jesus Christ himself comes out, greets the Jesuit, and says, welcome to heaven. So they all go back into heaven. 
the uh, red carpet and the blue carpet and the white carpet roll up and the gates close again and the Franciscan's waiting out there and he's just agog. And uh, he's waiting around and an hour passes, two hours passes, three hours passes. He's waiting for all of his saints to come out and someone to greet him. Finally, a little side door opens up and this um, little saint with a halo, this Franciscan saint, says, uh, hey, buddy, come over here. So the Franciscan goes over and he sees the little saint and the little saint says, welcome to heaven. And the Franciscan says, what, is that it? And the little saint says, what do you mean? He says, oh, come on. He says, the Jesuit gets the red carpets and, you know, St. Ignatius, his founder, and Mary and Jesus, and all I get is this crummy welcome. And the little saint says, oh, yeah, well, you have to remember something. We get Franciscans up here every day. We haven't had a Jesuit in 250 years. (laughs) All right, that's good. (laughs) You want to hear another one just for the hell of it? Okay, yeah. A guy uh, is trying to find um, some help with a problem he has. So he knocks on the door. Uh, of a Dominican church, and he says, do you say the rosary here? And the Dominican says, yeah. He says, you know, we're Dominicans. And he says, if if I give you a little donation, will you say a rosary for an intention I have? And the Dominican says, what's your intention? And he says, I want a Lexus. And the, the Dominican says, I, I don't know what that is. And the guy says, well, forget it. I'll go to a Franciscan church. So he goes to a Franciscan church, knocks on the door. Guy opens up in his brown habit. He says, will you say a rosary if I give you a donation and if I, you know, tell you my intention? And the Franciscan says, sure, I'm happy to do that. What's your intention? And he says, I want a Lexus. And the Franciscan said, I, I, what is that? And he says, forget that. So he says, I'll go to the Jesuits. So he knocks on the door. A guy opens up and he says, uh, are you a Jesuit? Yep. He says, uh, listen, before I go any further, I need to ask you something. He says, uh, do you know what a Lexus is? He goes, do I know what a Lexus is? He says, you know, half my parishioners drive Lexuses or Lexi. <laughs> and uh, he says, will you say a a rosary for my intention if I give you a little donation and the Jesuit says yeah what's a rosary <laughs> <laughs> okay, those I literally good. have about 50 of those jokes right, so. well, I'm glad I asked um, <laughs> <laughs> this has been really fun and wonderful so thank you so much I have one quick question I want to ask you and this will sure. not be in the show well two things mm-hmm. I almost, you know, there's the, also that prayer of Thomas Merton from Thoughts in Solitude. Mm, beautiful. We were, you Lord and I God. were captured by exactly the same books and the same passages. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I almost was going to I should ask, interview you. I'd love to hear your story, uh, too. I was going to ask you to bring that, and then it was too late. But um, I, we may just put it up and say that it's yeah, your favorite I can, prayer. Yeah, I can read it if you, you like me to read it. it? I'd I'll love just call it up on my, I'll oh, call it up yeah, my little phone. Oh, yeah, I would love for you to read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love... Okay. You know what? And I'm going to say something before I read it. Okay. Um, and let me just ask, are we okay if we have um, five more minutes? Okay. So we'll do mm-hmm. this, and then I have one question for you that's for something online. Yeah, sure. Okay. So this is from Thoughts and Th- Blah. This is from Thoughts and Solitude, and it's my favorite Thomas Merton prayer. And it is a prayer I find that everyone can pray. Yeah. My Lord God... I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. 
Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Thank you. Wonderful. I love that prayer. I love it too, and I hadn't read it for years and years. Everyone can pray it. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, So here's a question for you. Um, Mm -hmm. We asked people last year, kind of our listeners and readers online, to share memories and recollections about Christmas. Mm -hmm. And almost everybody, instead of talking about Christmas, talked about Advent with this warmth and intimacy that was really surprising and kind of mm-hmm. stunning. Mm-hmm. And so we just I just thought um, we wanted to ask you is this is this something true for you or you know what what would you how would you want to talk about the season of advent and and how you think that might speak to people um at this time of oh, year. Oh, I'm not I'm not sure I understand the question. So the question is how do I understand advent or well, is it is, is Advent meaningful Advent? for you, and and what what is oh. it about Advent um, that speaks to you, and and that you speaks and that you think you may think speaks to others um, in a special way? All right, let me. Um, I got something I want to just look up for a second. Hold on, don't record this part. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I like Advent more than Christmas. Uh, because it is free of a lot of the commercialism. You don't have, you know, Advent cards and Advent gifts and things like that. But also I I love the readings of Advent. Um, the whole uh, movement um, in the Christian liturgical uh, season in the readings are these beautiful readings about, uh, you know, God bringing life to the desert and uh, beautiful marshlands springing into bloom and the lion laying down with the lamb mm-hmm. and rivers on the bare heights and cedars in the desert. So it's just this beautiful imagery uh, of God kind of bringing new life out of something that is dry and dead. Uh, And I love the story of John the Baptist and the Annunciation and the coming of Jesus, which I find unbelievably beautiful. And so in a sense, the Advent season, you know, which is all about preparation for Christmas, uh, is a season um, of deep spirituality and if you can focus on that, um, you know, it usually makes your Christmas uh, a lot more meaningful. So I much prefer Advent over Christmas. And if we're up to me, um, you know, we'd get rid of a lot of the Christmas cards and gifts and just focus on Advent. Okay. All right. That's great. Well, it's just been such a pleasure talking with oh, you. Oh, my pleasure. Like I said, I, I really enjoy this and I love your show. 